Hello, this is Dr. David Brady, and today we'll be mapping fibromyalgia on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be talking with my friend, Dr. David Brady. Dr. Brady is a foremost authority on properly diagnosing and treating fibromyalgia. He's been featured in top popular media outlets, including Elle and NPR, has published in leading peer-reviewed medical journals, has also published chapters on fibromyalgia in definitive medical textbooks, and has presented at prestigious medical conferences, including the Annual Symposium of Functional Medicine and the Integrative Healthcare Symposium. Dr. Brady is also in private practice at Whole Body Medicine in Fairfield, Connecticut, and is the director of the Human Nutrition Institute at the University of Bridgeport, as well as the Chief Medical Officer of Designs for Health and Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory. Having witnessed his own mother suffer through the ringer of the medical system, Dr. Brady is uniquely passionate not only as a doctor, but also as a patient advocate, ensuring that patients receive compassionate care and meaningful results. Welcome, Dr. Brady. I'm thrilled to have you on the 15-Minute Matrix. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I'm so excited. This is a cool little new format for me. I know. It is cool, and it's fast and furious, and we have so much to cover. I'm wondering if you could start us off with defining what fibromyalgia is, and particularly how it's classified, because I think this becomes an interesting conversation for us as practitioners. Well, it's a hard one. Right now, it's classified in a group of chronic pain and fatigue-related disorders, and it falls in the specialty in our current medical system of rheumatology, although many argue it shouldn't be there at all because it's not autoimmune, it's not rheumatic, it's really a chronic central pain processing disorder. It got put in rheumatology before everyone understood that. Really should probably be in pain management. It really is a disorder that is a hypervigilance disorder, one that's driven by central sensitivity. So it's really a brain disorder. So it has a whole lot of things spindled onto it from the perception of pain all over the body to anxiety, to depression, to unrefreshed sleep, to functional bowel disorders like IBS. So it's really quite a complicated disorder that very few people fully understand. And it's a cluster of symptoms, it sounds like. Is there any formal way of diagnosing it as fibromyalgia? Well, there is a formal diagnostic criteria, and there's been actually a series of them over time, starting back in the 1990s with the first American College of Rheumatology, or ACR, criteria for fibromyalgia diagnosis, which ironically enough was never meant for clinicians to diagnose patients. It was meant for researchers to determine who had it and who didn't in a study. Hmm. The diagnostic criteria was woefully inadequate. It was really prone to overdiagnosis. That was that original one with the 11 out of 18 tender point kind of index thing. And 
Over time, it's been modified a multitude of times. The latest iteration is the 2016 criteria modified in 2017. It still suffers from a lot of overdiagnosis according to the analysis done on it. And let's just suffice it to say there's no clean, easy way to diagnose fibromyalgia. There's no specific lab test for it that's commercially available. According to the studies that have been done looking at this, even diagnoses by physicians of fibromyalgia are usually somewhere in the neighborhood of 65 to 70% inaccurate. When you are looking at the number of patients that you've worked with that have fibromyalgia, are there particular common antecedents or triggers that you've seen show up? That's a great question. First of all, let's just preface it by saying, you know, I see a lot of people that come in saying they have fibromyalgia, thinking they have fibromyalgia, being diagnosed with fibromyalgia by a physician, even by rheumatologists. Maybe they were told by a neighbor. Maybe they found out on Google. There's a million different ways. But I can say, in my experience, probably about 75 to 80 percent of them don't have what is really fibromyalgia in the literature. They don't have this central pain processing, hypervigilance type of disorder. They have all kinds of different stuff that's ganging up on them with a lot of different symptoms like fatigue, achiness or pain, anxiety, depression. And if they're a woman, middle-aged in particular, and they have all of those kind of symptoms, they're often to just get labeled with fibromyalgia and given Lyrica or given another fibromyalgia drug, and usually they don't get better. But of the, let's say, 20% that come to see me that really seem to have this classic pain processing disorder, which I term in my books classic fibromyalgia because it really is sort of the real deal, right? And by saying that, I don't mean to dismiss the other people that don't have classic fibromyalgia. Generally, they really have problems. They're just not getting accurate diagnosis. And because they're not getting an accurate diagnosis, they're usually not getting a good treatment plan, right? They're not getting a good intervention. But of the 20% that really have the central pain processing disorder, there is common antecedents and triggers. And the antecedents, there is some evidence that there's a genetic sort of susceptibility or propensity, offspring of mothers, usually daughters of mothers who had fibromyalgia. So there's probably a propensity like there is with many things, but not universally, but by and large, they have a much higher incidence of a lot of trauma or at least a lot of stress in their early life and in their upbringings. So they were from tumultuous backgrounds, you know, acrimonious parental relationships, bad divorces, substance abusing parents, a yelling authoritarian father that they can never live up to or be good enough for. They have very high expectations and standards for themselves, but they often have histories of trauma, abuse, kind of feeling almost threatened by their own family unit or circumstance. And when the nervous system is young and neuroplastic and it's learning to deal with the world in that environment, it tends to get locked in this sort of hypervigilant, sympathetic, dominant loop where it's constantly in overdrive, sort of waiting for the next shoe to drop, if you will. And over time, that has consequences that manifest in physical symptoms. And a lot of people you know, can term this many things. Some people have even in the past called it catastrophic behavior. Their nervous system kind of thinks everything's an imminent threat. So any sensory information coming into the central nervous system is often interpreted as a threat, like pain, for instance. To light touch becomes pain, all right? And they can never shut their brain off. So they tend to have anxiety. They tend to have unrefreshed sleep. Because even when they're sleeping, their brain doesn't go down into stage three and four restorative sleep. So they sleep 14 hours. They wake up feeling like they never slept. And a lot of this spillover sort of hypervigilant, sympathetic, dominant nervous system activity 
spills into the enteric nervous system as well. Things that are diagnosed as IBS, it's really just central sensitivity. So what manifests as fibromyalgia in the central nervous system manifests as what we call IBS in the enteric nervous system. Beautiful. You kind of took us from the triggers all the way into what I call the soup of the functional nutrition matrix, that central area. And we're talking about the gastrointestinal status. What is the immune and inflammatory balance? What's the state of the immune system when that nervous system is on overdrive? Well, it's interesting. It's an evolving story, actually. But contrary to what most healthcare practitioners would believe, fibromyalgia is not overtly inflammatory. And that goes against what most doctors think, right? Because they think pain equals inflammation. And that's not necessarily true. Certainly, tissue trauma can drive inflammation, which can drive pain and so forth. But there's pain that's not inflammatory. That's not tissue trauma or tissue uh, metabolic-based. Um, and uh, it's a whole new kind of pain. A lot of the pain researchers call it third pain because it's not nociceptive pain. It's not neuropathic pain. It's related to perception and processing of stimuli, in this case, pain in the brain. In a true classic fibromyalgia patient, you generally, unless there's another reason for it, you don't have high C-reactive proteins, you don't have high SED rates, you don't have any of the cytokines that are classically found in inflammatory disorders and in immune imbalance disorders like autoimmunity. So some of the big myths of fibromyalgia, true classic fibromyalgia is one, it's not a muscle problem. Even though they perceive pain in the soft tissues and muscles, that's not where the problem is. The problem is in the brain. Therefore, treatments directed at the muscles, muscle relaxers, you know, physical medicine stuff, generally doesn't get you where you want to go. So it's not a muscle problem. It's not overtly inflammatory, and it's not autoimmune. Now, most doctors, if you ask them in a questionnaire, they get all three of those wrong, okay, which is alarming, right? But it's nevertheless true. But there is relatively new information in the last few years that there may be an inflammatory component yet, but it's not a systemic overt inflammatory type of phenomena. It's a deep-seated brain inflammation of the glia in the brain. So the immune system of the brain, if you will, the microglia, seems to be upregulated and there's a deep-seated microinflammation, sort of like you get in the coronary arteries in cardiovascular atherogenesis, right? So some of the agents that have a pleomorphic effect, that they can affect these deep-seated microinflammatory cascade, things like statin drugs, vitamin D, and low-dose naltrexone have some actual utility in these disorders. We don't use statins because they can cause a whole nother boat of problems, right? Right. Would that cause pain as well? Right, right. Muscle pain for another reason, but certainly vitamin D and low-dose naltrexone I've used successfully in some patients like that, along with other agents that have pleomorphic effects like CBD, for instance. Beautiful. And I really love the clinical pearl in that if we shift the paradigm and we work through the lens of inflammation, if we take that away, if we address all or as many of the inflammatories as we can, and we don't see inflammatory markers, then we are looking more towards that 20% versus the 80% who may have a cluster of symptoms that is inflammatory and is not fibromyalgia. Is that correct? Yeah, but it gets even more complicated because as you know, the patient has the right to more than one disorder at any given time, right? <laughs> so often they come in with multiple things, right? It's not a clean this or that. A lot of times they have myofascial pain syndrome, like trigger points and true muscle problems, but they also have these central related things 
that are creating pain in the muscles. So sometimes it's hard to tease it all out and separate it. It takes a lot of experience and art almost to do it. You need to see it. It's like the scientific method. You know, it's the journey. It's where we have to, what I call the art of the practice is for assess, recommend, and track. And we have to continually be tracking and moving forward. So let's get down to those mediators, which also connects us to the skill or the right side of the matrix. What is it that you found helps to mediate the symptoms that a patient with fibromyalgia is experiencing? Since we're brief in time today, I'm going to confine my comments to that cohort that really has what we're talking about of classic fibromyalgia. And in that, you really have to move the dial a little bit on their set point in their central nervous system and try to get them out of this locked loop, catastrophic, like fight or flight, hypervigilance kind of mode. We do that in a bunch of ways. We look at some surrogate markers of neurotransmitter balance. It could be using organic acid testing, for instance, but we really want to look at their serotonergic pathways and their catecholamine pathways. And there are some common patterns that we see. We generally see an elevation in the catecholamine metabolites, like vanomandolate, homovanillate, things that are like epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine metabolite. We want to back those up. So we tend to use like central nervous system calming nutraceuticals or botanicals or agents from German chamomile to GABA, pharma GABA, uh, CBD can be helpful in that. But we also use things like 5-hydroxytryptophan to sort of give precursor feeding to the serotonergic pathway because they generally have low central serotonin, low central cerebral spinal fluid serotonin, so they get upregulated substance P and increased pain perception. So usually we're trying to raise their serotonergic pathways while reducing their catecholamine output so they don't have that anxiety and panic so we have to be careful about that because a lot of practitioners will just give them adrenal supplements, right? And many of these adrenal supplements are meant to tonify adrenal HPA function. So they upregulate catecholamine production. They have tyrosine. They have things that are more stimulating, like adaptogens that are stimulating, like Eleuthero or Panax ginseng or, or rhodiola. That makes a lot of these patients worse. They drive more into panic, more into hypervigilance. So we need to use the calming things like ashwagandha or withania, somnifera, or, you know, or anthenine and inositol and, and phosphatidylserine and all the calming things that, you know, we all know how to use. But combine that with cognitive behavioral therapy, we use heart rate variability, we'll use real-time EEG training, and then get them off to more of an app-based sort of biohacking technology, like on their phone or something, to calm their nervous system. But we work a lot with sleep hygiene, I have to tell you. And these patients don't go into stage three and four sleep. So we use things like sustained release, good quality sustained release technology, melatonin. We'll use GABA at night. I sometimes use CBD at night. We'll also work with their sleep hygiene, you know, circadian rhythm, respecting that, getting to bed by 10, 1030, getting up at a reasonable time, not oversleeping, being in a really good sleep environment, no St. Bernard's in the bed, very dark, very quiet. We have them do calming practices at night, whether it's meditation, deep breathing, prayer, whatever it may be, and get off the devices, get the blue lights blocked in the evening, right? All of that kind of stuff. It seems like it wouldn't have a big impact, but in these patients, it really does. So I have to ask Dr. Brady, any dietary intervention? Like any other chronic metabolic kind of condition, they should be eating good whole foods, right? Clean foods. But it's not as easy as these overtly inflammatory conditions when you can go on a you know very anti-inflammatory diet, hit them with all kinds of anti-inflammatory herbs, because inflammation is not the prime driver of the issue. Now, that doesn't mean they shouldn't eat good foods. I find 
And even in my book, you know, the fibro fix, I run them through like sort of a 21 day detox first. Now it's not that the detox program is some magic fix for fibromyalgia. It's just sort of preparing them for the deeper healing, getting them less inflammatory and getting all the other noise off the line and getting them eat whole real foods. That's good macronutrient balance, good lean protein, lots of phytonutrients. I think it's beneficial to get them off the high inflammatory antigenic things, you know, dairy, gluten and things like that, at least for a while to kind of get them on the pathway to recovery. Right. I call those the non-negotiables. So one final question for you, Dr. Brady. Oftentimes when we're in the realm of working with chronic health conditions, as you and I are, we're in the position of articulating that distinction between what we do and what those in acute care medicine do. And fibromyalgia, as you're articulating for us today, is really a victim of the current medical model that is so adept at focusing on resolutions for acute care and currently still deficient in addressing the needs of the chronically ill. What's your perspective on how we help bridge this current gap in medicine, particularly for those who are suffering like these patients with fibromyalgia? It's tough. Another good question. You know, it really is a bifurcated system right now because the political agendas, financial agendas, and just the whole cultural authority paradigm kind of thing at play where, you know, the first textbook of medicine has been written and it's all been written based on acute care, traumatic care, uh, infectious care. And that's where the system is incredibly good. I mean, they're way, way good, really advanced at that stuff, right? If I get in a horrific accident, God forbid, on the way home, I need a level one trauma center. Don't bring me to my functional medicine doctor or my naturopath, right? But on the other hand, if I have one of these multifactorial, complicated, complex, chronic diseases, I'm much better served at the latter because they're going to look at how all these things connect the holism of it all, right? It's not as easy as a this for that fix, you know, this drug will fix it. We know that the drugs that are available for fibromyalgia are retreaded antidepressants and antiepileptics. They don't work very well. Less than 25% respond. And those who do, most of the time, any benefit wears off after a couple of months, but the side effects persist. There's no good answer for this condition in pharma right now. Maybe there will be. There isn't now. We have to attack it from a whole different paradigm. And I really think all of us in functional integrative medicine, naturopathic medicine, and clinical nutrition, all of that, we're right now writing the second textbook of medicine, and that's about chronic complex disease. Brilliant. So well said. Thank you so much for joining us and for all that wisdom you shared today, Dr. Brady. You're welcome. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear many more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a short reminder that a new episode is ready and waiting for you. Plus, I'd love to hear from you. You have an invitation to email us anytime, any day. Anywhere you want, please do email us. We want to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what you'd like to see mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix. You can do so at ask 
at 15minutematrix.com. That's ask at 15minutematrix.com. 